This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. Coming to you live from a radio tower near you, studying the intersections of video games and science. This is Pokey Science. Well, 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 welcome everyone to an episode of Pokey Science, a podcast chat fest where an interdisciplinary group of Pokemon enthusiasts gather around to talk about science and culture in the Pokemon world. I'm one of your co-hosts today, Dr. Ray Allen, an Indigenous American scientist, artist, and Pokey fan. And today we are joined by a very special guest to talk to us about ecology. Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? I would love to. And my name is Jillian So Karowski Legree, and I am an ecologist as well as an arachnologist, which means I study spiders and the places they live in. I did my undergraduate education at Iowa State University, where I majored in animal ecology, and I recently completed my master's at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, where I studied environmental science and policy. And there is where I got to learn all about how many species of spiders exist, how to identify them, and why they choose to live in the places that they do. I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln with Dr. Eileen Hebbett, and I am working on spider communication and behavior, as well as a little bit of human communication and behavior too. Very cool. We'll have to, I have to, I'll have to refrain from asking you all the spider questions and focus more on ecology, but the uh, biologist in me wants to know everything about spider Pokemon. So, <laughs> on the topic of Pokemon, uh, how has the Pokemon franchise or the video games influenced you, your research, and your research interests? So, I have been into Pokemon since I was a little kid. I remember opening my first pack of Pokemon cards at six years old. It was the elementary library, and I was so excited. I got Absol in the pack. Uh, since then, I have played with, I've played all the mainline games and a few side games. My favorite games, though, are Pokemon Diamond, the original one. I, I don't like the new one, and the mystery <laughs> dungeon <like> games. <laughs> But as a kid, I used to joke that my dream job was to be like a Pokemon trainer or a gym leader. And as I got older and got into entomology and ecology, my friends and I would joke that we felt like Pokemon trainers going out and catching them all because we were going out and catching insects. But now my big kid job is being a real life Pokemon trainer slash researcher. And I couldn't be happier. I get to study everything about animals, just like in Pokemon. So when I go out to collect bugs, I like to start my day off by playing Pokemon music to get in the zone, like the, the tall grass music or the battle music. And I literally get to walk through the tall grass and catch Pokemon. And by that, I mean spiders, but... <laughs> Sorry, I'm still just thinking about how I'm avoiding the, the new Pokemon Diamond and Pearl games or the newer versions of them. And I also thought you were going to say like, oh, I wanted to be a Pokemon trainer growing up. And then I realized that it wasn't a real job or something. That's what I was fully expecting you to say. But that's very cool and very exciting. So are there a lot of different types of creatures that you... This is a side question. Creatures that you catch then when you go out and play Pokemon music and my main be a real-life focus... trainer? Yeah, my main focus is catching spiders. Um, but when you catch spiders, you tend to get a lot of bycatch of other things. So I have collected a lot of other invertebrates, standard, you know, 
beetles, flies, bees, that kind of thing, because they happen to be in the same places and due to the collection methods. But I've also caught the occasional vertebrate, mostly frogs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> predators. Right? They know where the spiders are. <laughs> Very cool. And so we wanted to have you on the podcast today to talk about the field of ecology. And for, for folks who may not be familiar with it, can you tell us what is ecology? Yeah, in the simplest terms, ecology is the study of how organisms and their environment interact. This includes both living and non-living things. Ecology can be looked at as a big picture or even a little picture. Ecology can focus on an entire ecosystem or a habitat, like a forest or an ocean, while other branches of ecology might focus on just a single species or a group of organisms. Interesting. Can you touch a little bit on what you mean by like non-living portions of the environment? Absolutely. Non-living things can include like climate, soil, geology, um, the different abiotic factors of an environment, anything that's not like a living organism, like an animal or a plant or um, like a microorganism. So think of like a spider hiding under a rock. It's interacting with a non-living thing in its environment. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And so what does... You gave us a few examples already, but what does ecology look like in real life as well? I feel like this is such a big question because ecology comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I think the best way to talk about what ecology looks like in real life is to talk a little bit about the different kinds of ecologists and ecologies that exist. So like I said, I'm a spider ecologist, which means I research how spiders interact with their environment. But there are so many different kinds of ecologists out there. To name a few, you've got population ecologists. Uh, population ecologists study how a specific group of a single species changes over time and interacts as a population. For example, a population ecologist could study how a single pack of wolves grows or shrinks in numbers, why that pack shrinks and grows, and how that pack interacts with their environment, such as how many deer are they eating a year, and how eating the deer may change the community of plants because there are more or less deer eating those plants. Another kind is a conservation ecologist. Conservation ecologists focus on how to protect and preserve species, habitats, and natural resources. For example, a conservation ecologist might research how to protect coral reefs from climate change. Behavioral ecologists study how the environment impacts the behavior of a species. So I currently work with so many great behavioral ecologists, and one of them studies how urban noise impacts spider behavior, as spiders are really sensitive to vibrations caused by sound. And we know that cities tend to be, quote, noisy to spiders. So my friend looks at if that noise changes how spiders behave. Another kind of ecologist is a community ecologist. They study how communities of organisms form. This is kind of what I study, and I look at how different communities of spiders come to be as well as plant communities and how those spider and plant communities interact with each other. Aquatic ecologists, which you might be familiar with, Ray, <laughs> aquatic ecologists <Yeah>. <laughs> study the relationship of organisms in aquatic environments and all bodies of water can be included in this. Freshwater, saltwater, ponds, lakes, tide pools, uh, however you <laughs> interact with water. And one I'd like to mention is social ecologists. Um, social ecologists study how 
people interact with their environment. As people, we are part of the environment. We're an organism. And an example of social ecology is studying how humans produce and consume food. How much land are we using? How much food are we producing? Is it sustainable? This list goes on about <laughs> the different kinds of ecologists and examples are endless. And also, many ecologists study more than one kind of ecology. As an ecologist, I not only study spider ecology, but I also dabble in community ecology and conservation ecology. But last but not least, not all ecologists are always called ecologists either. One kind of ecologist you have probably met is a doctor of medicine. Um, doctors often have to understand and research how a virus such as the flu interacts with its environment, the human body. And we call this body ecology, but I don't think most people are aware that, you know, ecologists work with more than just an animal or a plant. It can include things like the human body. That's interesting. I've never heard of the term body ecology before, but that makes a lot of sense. And then uh, going back to aquatic ecology, is there are there spiders that live in like the ocean and stuff? There are aquatic based spiders, and I do I have one that I want to save for later. Oh, okay. Um, but there are a handful of spiders that live around water, some in water, and the way they you know play their role in this aquatic uh, community as they're both predator and prey um of course there are some spiders that can actually stand on water using the surface tension it's super super cool um <laughs> they can even sail if you want to call it that they'll use like wind forces <laughs> to travel across the water you can look up videos of it it's really awesome um but they can catch invertebrates and maybe even small vertebrates around water bodies. And alternatively, they can serve as food to fish, frogs, different kinds of uh, aquatic animals. Cool. I just want to ask all the spider questions, but we're going to focus on ecology for now. So you I could about totally <laughs> go in depth. I mean, spiders are thought to be a link between water and land, but we can save that for later. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll wait with bated breath. So focusing a little bit still on ecology. So what makes you describe the wide variety of ecologists and fields of ecology that people um, focus on. So what makes ecology an important field to study? And this is, this is probably like a more legitimate question coming from me as somebody who studies like one organism at a time or one specific system of an organism at a time. But you, I, I, I see this idea of looking at the bigger picture coming up more and more for folk. Right. Ecology is important for so many reasons. And one big reason is that ecology is connected to and influences so many other fields of science and more. I personally believe you can connect ecology to every other field of science out there. It can connect us to medicine, astronomy, geology, chemistry, physics, math, engineering, like literally everything. <laughs> and it also connects to humanities and arts too. Many people connect ecology with art, music, writing, dance, communication, culinary, video games. Again, you can connect ecology with so many things. And I wish I had time to give examples of all of these, but if you think about it hard enough, you can draw those connections between the fields. But that leads me to how can ecology connect to so many fields? And I believe it's because ecology at its core helps us to understand the world we live in. And it's not just about animals, plants, climate, soils, and outer space. 
like I said before, ecology involves people too. People are animals, we are organisms, and we interact with our environment. We are a, a big part of the environment. One big takeaway that I got from learning to be an ecologist is that everything in this world is connected because there are so many interactions between living and non-living things. And those connections, whether they seem big or small, are important to the how the world around us functions. Think like the butterfly effect, right? If we change one thing, it can cause a chain of different events, good or bad or neutral. I used to work on food web dynamics and how animals in the food chain are connected. I specifically worked in the Mariana Islands with the focus on the island of Guam, because on Guam, birds have gone functionally extinct due to an invasive snake eating birds and their eggs. And functionally extinct means that they no longer serve a large role in the ecology of Guam because there are so few. So the impact they have on the larger food web is quite minimal. Because this one group of animals has gone functionally extinct, we saw changes in other parts of the food web. Spiders and potentially other invertebrates have seemed to increase. So when I was on Guam, you couldn't walk like one foot without running face first into a spider in the forest. It was a spider lover's heaven, maybe another person's nightmare, but it was drastically different from the other islands that are pretty close to Guam. And you could physically feel that difference if you're, you know, in tune with the natural world around you. So when I island hopped to these other places, it was it was like this weird alternate universe, right? So with this increase of spiders and other invertebrates, this could alter the populations of the animals that prey on the spiders or insects or the animals that spiders and insects eat. Of course, invertebrates and birds are strongly connected to plant communities too, so no doubt plants are being impacted as well. So you can see how these interactions between each of these groups, you know, plants, spiders, birds, that kinds of thing, when you mess with one of those interactions, it causes a chain effect, like the butterfly effect. One of the biggest reasons why ecology is so important is that it helps us to learn how we can better take care of our world so that we can protect and preserve the Earth we live on. Some scientists will argue that we are currently in a mass extinction event, and the job of an ecologist in this instance is to first ask, why are these species going extinct? And then ask, how can I solve this problem? But it's not just species going extinct. There are entire habitats disappearing from our planet. I study an endangered habitat called Alvar, and if you've never heard of it, you should totally Google it and check it out. But as an ecologist, I asked myself, you know, why is Alvar habitat disappearing and how can I protect and maybe even expand the remaining Alvar on the planet? So let me ask that question to you then. Why are a lot of these species going extinct and how, how come we are losing some of these big habitats? I, I say the royal we, but how come, I guess nations and communities losing these important species and habitats? I think there is somewhat of a consensus that a lot of it is anthropogenic, so caused by humans. <gasps> what? Um, <laughs> I know, plot twist, surprise. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but when I think about Alvar, for example, the habitat I work on, 
part of why Alvar is going extinct is because of human expansion. A lot of Alvar looks like a grassland at first glance. So a lot of people in agriculture have used them for grazing fields or perhaps they used it to build their homes on. But the thing about Alvar is it's got this unique bedrock surface. It's not very much soil. It's mostly bedrock. So when people get to Alvar's, then one of their first instincts is to just get rid of all this rock, which is kind of a... (laughs) kind of an endless task because it's pretty much all rock but you know when I'd go out to my field site there'd just be these piles of rock like people trying to get rid of it but it's supposed to be there and you know another thing is that rock as it exists is important um, in its you know natural state but there's a highway that was actually built right through my field site which causes cracks in the rock. And these cracks alter the hydrology of the site, which is actually really important. So how water exists on the site. And because Alvar is so much rock, it's very prone to flooding and droughts and all of that. And so all of these organisms that live on Alvars, you know, are used to this. But when you've got these cracks in the rock, it it changes that dynamic of water on uh, the habitat surface. So Again, humans are are causing so many of these problems. And you can probably think of a a million different examples of how people are impacting our environment from pollution to, you know, climate change to cutting down forests to, you know, some to unsustainable agriculture. It just it it goes on. And with an increasing human population, we're going to have to start to get creative in how we we want to make these largely impactful actions to help protect and preserve it's something that i think about all the time is like a lot of these things don't happen just aren't happening out of the blue it's like easy to call it a mass extinction but it can also be labeled as like human societies are causing mass extinction events well, so. and this kind of tracks back to what I was talking about earlier, that ecology is connected to so many fields. I think history is so important to ecology. So part of my master's thesis, I dug through the land history, you know, who lived on this Alvar? Uh, and that would be the Ho-Chunk and Menominee nations. They were the first people to live on the Alvar. And of course, colonization occurred. And so you get different settlers. And I even went into individual records of homeowners of who lived there and satellite records of how they were using that land and all of that. And you can even go back into, you know, historical records of just events that have happened uh, within that landscape. And I think more ecologists should start looking into land history and how over time the habitats we've worked on have changed due to human impact, how that gets us to where we are now, and what can we do about it. I 1000% agree with you. So that's a little bit of a, a intro to ecology, but let us talk about some Pokemon. <laughs> Sorry, I always have to do the little transition sound in my mind. <laughs> I'm excited to talk Pokemon. (laughs) Yes. So the first question I have for you is, how does ecology show up in the Pokemon games and universe? Ecology is everywhere in Pokemon, and that's what makes me so excited to talk about it. In the early days of Pokemon, we get a sense of ecology largely from the Pokemon anime, the manga, and a lot of the Pokedex entries. We learn how Pokemon and people interact with their environment. 
So I did a little bit of my own research for this episode and went and watched some Pokemon. Oh, really? <laughs> to pull examples. Good job, good job. So I found in the Indigo episode, Clefairy and the Moonstone, which features Seymour the Scientist, Seymour explains some of the connections between Pokemon and their habitats. He talks about how cave Pokemon rely on the dark, such as Zubat, Paris, and Sandshroom. We can gather a lot of information from this single line he has about lights being added to the cave. He says, these lights are upsetting them and making them confused. Look here. These parrots are planting their mushrooms everywhere, and these hot lights are drying up the sand shrew. So Aww. in the episode, these Zubats attack Seymour because the cave has light in it, and he mentions that all the Zubat have left. And this must mean it's unsafe for a Zubat to inhabit the cave if there's light, or it could mean that they believe it's the wrong time of day, which would impact their circadian rhythms. And if you don't know what a circadian rhythm is, it's just uh, basically an internal biological clock that recognizes what time of day it is. When we learn that Paris are removing their mushrooms in the light, Seymour seems talks about this like it's a negative thing. So perhaps they're preemptively removing their fungi, thinking that it's the right time to plant them, which then means the mushrooms on Paris must grow in the dark or rely on the dark. And then in the light is when they plant them and continue this cycle. So the life cycle of Paris's mushrooms relies on light and dark cycles. As for Sandshrew, we can tell that they rely on the coolness of the cave to stay out of the heat. And from this, it could mean that they don't get enough water to be in sunlight as much um, or other factors such as that. So with this episode also being about Clefairy, uh, we learn that Clefairy form social groups and their social groups have interactions based on moon cycles and the presence of the moonstone. And I really love the idea that Pokemon have a strong connection to geology, especially based on like stone evolutions. And this is all ecology. This is just one episode, but it shows you how robust ecology can be in Pokemon if you really think about it. Are you telling me I shouldn't be using Flash in the caves when I'm exploring the Pokemon games? You're going to make all the Zubat leave. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're always attacking us is because we're... Just making it. That, that'd be an interesting concept is if you use Flash, you get uh, attacked even more and more by Zubat. That's a really good idea. Let me call the devs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, hmm. That's, that is a lot of pokey ecology in one episode of Pokemon. So. Right. Hmm. And a lot of that I pulled from just a single sentence from a character. So there's so much more you can do. If you watch the newer series of Pokemon, which I am a huge fan of the Journeys series, there's an episode where Chloe goes looking for Galarian Ponita and Rapidash. And this episode is called The Tale of You and Glimwood Tangle. And Chloe mentions that Galarian Ponita and Rapidash live somewhere deep in Glimwood Forest, uh, meaning this part of the forest is probably unique or different from the rest of the larger forest. And she mentions that this particular piece of forest has a special energy that over time in many generations has given the Galarian Ponita and Rapidash its unique typing and physical appearance. And for anyone who might not know, the original Rapidash and Ponita are these fire types. They look like horses on fire, uh, but in the Galarian forms, they look like these cotton candy horses. It's <laughs> awesome. But hearing this from Chloe, that this energy has changed 
Ponita and Rapidash over time, this tells us that the environment is exerting some sort of evolutionary pressure on the Ponita and Rapidash. When we see the actual Glimwood Forest in the episode, it's very dark. Ash and Go even comment that it looks like nighttime, and you can see it's filled with these like giant glowing mushrooms and lichen, which I think is awesome. I love bioluminescence. <laughs> but it's unknown exactly what this energy is. It's never specified in the episode. But in my theory crafting... <laughs> I assume Rapidash and Ponita are herbivores. This is because they're ungulates, they're hooved. Uh, many of many ungulates are herbivores. So this is my assumption based on their physical appearance. We also know from the Legends of Arceus games, there's um, you can look up what kind of food different Pokemon like, and it said that Ponita and Rapidash like hearty grains, plump beans, and springy mushrooms. So with such interesting fungi all around Glimwood Forest, I gather there is some sort of like, first of all, this soil climate thing happening that impacts the vegetation and fungi that the Pokemon eat. Like It must be humid or moist with that kind of giant fungal growth. And of course, there's something going on with the bioluminescence. And we know that Ponita and Rapidash eat fungi. And so the fungi of Glimwood Forest seem pretty unique in this anime storyline. So if they are eating the fungi like they do in Arceus, this may be what's causing type and appearance change. So <laughs> Is it everything a herbivore in Pokemon universe? Just uh, ignore the fact that other animals eat other animals? I other can't remember. <laughs> I know that... The mainline Pokemon games mention that people eat Pokemon, <laughs> and there may be an entry about Pokemon. Yes, I think I mentioned this later too, but there are Pokedex entries that tell us that like some Pokemon eat other types of Pokemon, but it's very vague. So it's not like, oh, uh, Magikarp eats Weedle, <laughs> but it's, you know, this, this like, oh, they oh eat bug types or bugs you know <laughs> i don't know i'm still itching to get some slowpoke tail Tasty yeah <laughs> in, the slowpoke survive i maybe maybe this is crazy but i've always wanted to try pokemon meat <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure it's delicious all that like uh mushroom fed uh Right, mushroom, mushroom and Oh my god, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm just mushroom, kidding. <laughs> mushroom fed milk tank, there we go. Taste me. I think something really cool, though, with the newer Pokemon games, like Sword and Shield, Legends of Arceus, Scarlet and Violet, we finally get open world gameplay, which means it shows us a lot more about Pokemon and their relationship with the environment. And you can also see this in Pokemon Snap, but I just love seeing where all the Pokemon live, how they're interacting with each other. The habitats are really dynamic. I That's one of my new favorite things about the newer Pokemon games is just getting to see Pokemon in the wild doing their thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you've kind of, from what you've described with us already, we're already learning a lot about ecology from Pokemon. But what are some of these other topics we can learn about from the Pokemon games and ecology? Yeah, you can get... A lot of ecology out of Pokemon without maybe even realizing that you're learning about ecology. So as many fans of Pokemon might know, Satoshi Tajiri, the creator of Pokemon, was inspired by insects in making the game. So many Pokemon actually mimic real-world animals. 
And that being said, you can draw a lot of parallels between Pokemon and the real world. Many Pokemon are adapted to the environment they live in. Most Pokemon have specific parts of the region where you can find them, and their type tends to match where they live. You know, ice types live in snow-covered places, water types, you find them in oceans or the beaches, lakes, ponds, you get the idea. And this is totally reflective of how organisms in the real world are. You can get a lot of information about the kinds of places organisms live just by their physical characteristics too. So if you see, uh, say, a whalelord, you can probably guess where you'll find that whalelord, right? Because it it mimics a real life whale and you use what you know about whales in this instant, right? Whales live in the ocean. And so you can, you know, use that to say, I think I'll find Whalord in the ocean if I haven't seen it yet. I probably have to use Surf to go find it. Or, you know, <laughs> Geodude look like rocks, right? So you might assume that you need to go to a mountain or, you know, a cave to go find these different kinds of Pokemon. That's what I love about the original Pokemon Snap. I think, was it Geodude and other of its evolution lines, like just hanging on the rock cliff? Yeah, I see. That's why I love that open world stuff, because you get to see things that you don't normally get to see in like the original games where it's, you know, I love pixel art. It's beautiful. And of course, we've come such a long way. But now you just get this robustness out of the Pokemon world that we didn't get before. Giving them some more personality. Right. Or behavior. So in this same kind of vein, we get regional forms, right? Different regional forms of Pokemon based on the different regions they live in. And this reminds me a lot of Darwin's finches. And if you're unfamiliar with the story of Darwin's finches, Darwin had collected finches across the Galapagos Islands, and they looked largely similar except for their beaks, which each beak had a drastically different shape and function. And it turns out that all of these birds, they belonged to the same genus. And I'm going to totally mess this up. I'm not an ornithologist, but it's called Geospizinae. I just read these words. I never have to say them out loud. That's okay. <laughs> but That's okay. the theory behind this is called adaptive radiation. And adaptive radiation means that species changed as they essentially left a central location. This is typically seen across islands. So when a species, you know, inhabits one island and then another, you can perhaps see these changes in them. So in Pokemon, we are getting that theory of adaptive radiation with the regional forms of Pokemon. And this was first introduced in the Alola region, where we first get to see these regional forms in Pokemon like Sandshrew, Vulpix, Diglett, Meowth, and more. So we can assume, let's say, a Diglett found itself away from the Kanto region and it came to Alola. Maybe it tunneled under the ocean to Alola. But now that it's uh, spent time in Alola and over generations, it's starting to change based on its new environment. And it gets that cool beach wave wig. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was introduced by uh, human impacts in the Pokemon universe. Right. Maybe they brought over Diglett to, I don't know, attack an invasive species. Do we have any worm Pokemon? I would assume Diglett would like interact with some sort of annelid worm-like creature, but... I digress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could theorycraft about Pokemon for days. <laughs> <laughs> but I just I also love how many Pokemon have real world counterparts. And I hope that encourages many fans to learn more about those real world real world counterparts. And that's 
what's so cool about the ecology of Pokemon, right? It, there's, there's a real life parallel to it. And one of my personal favorites, and this was the one I hinted to earlier, is Dewpider. Dewpider is real. It exists in real life. <laughs> it's called um, Argronida. My advisor is probably <laughs> cringing if he heard me say that. Argronida aquatica. And it lives entirely underwater. And it's pretty much the only spider that does this. So just like Dewpider, this real life spider uses a bubble to breathe while underwater. Um, although instead of the bubble being filled with water like Dewpider, filled with air, they're kind of like vice versa, right? One lives on land, the real one lives in water, but it's the same concept, right? They've got this bubble that they use to breathe. So in the real spider, the bubble covers its abdomen and not its head because spiders breathe, if you will, through their abdomen. I was going to say this is an example of a Pokemon interacting with um, a non-living material, correct? Yes, exactly. So it it's is how carrying water with it. Yeah, this you know Pokemon, this animal's interacting with water, and so you can start to ask a lot of questions based on that. You know, how is this spider interacting with water? What is its prey? Where does it live specifically within the water? Does it live in the plants? Does it live in the open? Does it live on the surface? You know, all these different questions. So if you've got a Pokemon you really, really enjoy, take your favorite Pokemon and see if there's a real world counterpart to it or find the closest animal that matches that Pokemon or plant too. Like, my favorite Pokemon is Scorch. As a wedding gift, I had my friend, or my friend, he gave me a, a PSA grade 10, like foil Scorch Gigantamax. It was the best gift ever. Anyways, Scorch is obviously based on centipedes. And there's a lot of really cool centipedes out there from just these like gigantic Vietnamese centipedes to these centipedes that I know of that are like bright blue and almost like yellowish. So there's just so many cool things you can learn about the real world through Pokemon. You know, if you take that little extra step of asking questions and having that curiosity. So that leads me into the a next set of questions that we usually ask folks is like, what is what does Pokemon get wrong about a certain topic and what does it get right? So let's start with the actually negative first. So what does the Pokemon games in general get wrong about ecology? To me, it's less about what it gets wrong, but what it seems to be missing. So I have so many questions about Pokemon ecology. Then again, I have so many questions about real world ecology and how the earth functions. But I guess when we think about Pokemon filling ecological niches, niches, however you want to say it, meaning the role they play in their environment, I think about legendary Pokemon. <laughs> so we get this information about how these individual legendaries control time, space, creation, etc. And of course, as much as I'd love to have a giant dinosaur-esque creature that acts as a physical present deity, we don't have this in the real world, <laughs> at least as far as we know. And legendary Pokemon are kind of like these ecological outliers because in the real world, you'll never see a single individual organism shaping an entire ecosystem like legendary Pokemon do. So you might have like a population of a species that impacts a system, but I can't think of a single example where it's like one specific individual that creates this whole chain of events in a habitat or an ecosystem. But on the topic of legendaries, 
we see that legendaries have physical bodies. And in the games, you can feed these legendaries berries, poffins, pokey cubes, etc. So to me, that begs the question, do legendaries poop? How is it recycled? And what Pokemon eat poop, if any, to recycle it? Like <laughs> legendary it your skin. <laughs> right? It's just pure energy. Pure energy. Legendary Pokemon poop. Like my mom used to always say, the bigger the dog, the bigger the poop. Like that's what I think with Pokemon. It, the bigger the Pokemon, the bigger the poop, right? But even regular Pokemon, I just really want to know about the decomposition and recycle of nutrients in the Pokemon world. There's mention of like compost and fertilizers and stuff, but of course the details are vague. We don't know what is being used in this compost and fertilizer for berries and the likes. But I did look up if Pokemon poop is ever explicitly mentioned anywhere. And there is one Pokedex entry that says people used to use Darumaka droppings to keep themselves warm. They'd stick it in their clothes. Gross. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I, I, I'm, now that you brought up the legendaries and kind of how they, your analysis of them, that's made me think a little bit more about, well, it's kind of, the lore behind legendaries has changed a little bit where originally it was there are only these three legendary birds, but now like we're seeing variations of them or different versions of them. And so I don't know, I was trying to think about some instances where I do a lot of work around lakes and stuff. And something that I've noticed is that how a very, very small group of individuals can have a huge impact on like a lake environment. An example being like the large predatory fish and how you don't see many of them or some of the biggest ones, you don't see many of them. And maybe it's because they compete against each other. But it's it's weird to think about. But I, hmm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on even if it's not like one individual, but a very, very small population like cats is one people talk about all the time and how much right. destruction they can do. But then even thinking about one person within like a region that does so much modification themselves to something whether that's like introducing a non-local species, that is an impact that they're doing. That is true. I didn't think about that. Humans as individuals do cause a lot of problems. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. They can be very, one person can be extraordinarily destructive. (laughs) I'm looking at you. Censor this out. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Redacted, redacted. (laughs) Yeah, this idea of like smaller groups of perhaps more impactful and larger individuals. I mean, maybe if you think about legendaries as like a a certain population or within the same sort of taxonomic group. But I also think about, you know, how they're split up across regions. Do they they travel? Do they migrate? That sort of thing. It's an interesting thought. And I'm definitely going to theory craft about this more to myself post podcast (laughs) episode because this is the kind of stuff that I love thinking about (laughs) sorry back in the day I was just thinking about how even Muse they talked about like I think on the first movie of Pokemon like there were multiple Muse being listed is that correct I am not quite sure I'd have to go back Mm. and watch but things like that it would be interesting the Pokemon can't like be the Pokemon franchise can't make a decision about, like, if there's one or multiple of something, <laughs> with, with a few glaring exceptions. Lack of consistency of the legendaries. Come on, Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when they when uh, Western scientists are like, this Pokemon is extinct and doesn't exist, or this Pokemon, this uh, animal doesn't exist anymore, 
And then it's like 10 years later, like we found the small population that's been avoiding humans for decades. They still right? exist. You, I mean, there's probably like a whole episode's worth of theory crafting you could do about legendaries and ecology. Anyways, we'll <laughs> I could go on list. about this forever. <laughs> but, you know, another thing in Pokemon ecology that they don't really touch on as much as I would like them to is extinction and the impact of extinction. We get stories of near extinction, but not the impact it had on the Pokemon world or like this larger impact. In Pokemon, we learn that Sharpedo almost went extinct due to overfishing. And this is a reflection of a real world issue today concerning shark fin soup. I think it's a really nice touch. But I do think Pokemon could have gone further in exploring how this impacts the larger ocean ecosystem of Pokemon. There's also this really touching story about a player who, as a kid, read in the Pokédex that Lapras had almost gone extinct and their numbers have dwindled. You can see this entry in generations one through six. And so this player then proceeded to breed as many Lapras as possible in their game because they wanted to save them from extinction. And Gen 7, the Alola region, the Pokédex now says there's an overpopulation due to protective measures being enacted to protect the species. And the Gen 7 Ultra entry does add this touch that I was looking for, where it mentions the overabundance of Lapras has caused fish Pokemon to decline. But again, I, I wish they had mentioned something like this during the near extinction portion. I mean, in the earlier gens, like Gen 1, I'm pretty sure they thought Pokemon, you know, wasn't going to go as far as it did. So I'm not going to be like, they should have thought of this. Um, but it would be interesting to see in the anime, right? Like if there's a region where this Pokemon's going extinct, seeing like Ash and Co. or the new characters in Co. You know, learn about this extinction or near extinction, this conservation effort and doing something about it. I think that would be really impactful. And I hope that when people hear about a real animal going near extinct or, you know, needing conservation efforts, that they bring this same energy that this player did with the Lapras, right? Which was wanting to do something about it, wanting to save the species. So the follow-up question then is, what is Pokemon getting right about ecology? At the core of ecology, ecology is about organisms and their interactions with the environment. And I think Pokemon pretty much nails this in game design, in writing, etc. We get to see a lot about how Pokemon and people of the Pokemon world interact with their environment. Of course, like we mentioned, it's not always perfect, but there is this really dynamic ecology to the Pokemon world. But if we want to look at real world ecology versus Pokemon ecology, there's a lot of stuff that's similar and different. So I think Pokemon does a really decent job of mimicking real world climate and geography. And at first, you might not think this because you're like, well, how can there be a beach and a mountain with snow in a single place? Those exist. It's called Japan and Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> but each region is based on a real place. And the Johto, Kanto, Hoenn, and Sinnoh are all based on different regions of Japan. I mean, Kanto is based off a very real Kanto region of Japan. That's what it's called in real life. And you can think of a lot of regions that we see as, you know, I think the first four generations are supposed to technically be like one 
continent one landmass, but you can also view a lot of the regions as perhaps islands, just like Japan. And, you know, the more I talk about this, this goes into a total deep dive of how the regions reflect real places down to the cities and the routes and the landmarks. You know, like there's one of the mountains is supposed to be Mount Fuji. To spare some time, I'll leave the audience and Ray, y'all can dig into that more. There's this really awesome like Bulbapedia post that breaks down every single Pokemon like village and route and what the potential real world's parallel is. But the main point here is that I love how important region and habitat is to how Pokemon appear and how they live. Another thing I really liked is the thought put into Legends of Arceus and how Pokemon have changed over time, uh, as well as that like adaptive radiation concept. From Legends of Arceus, we learned that the Hisui region is a precursor to the Sinnoh region and is, quote, untouched by civilization. To me, this is a big indicator that the expansions the expansion of humans has caused changes in Pokemon over time. And this is exactly like the real world. We have changed species and their range over time, especially through industrialization, urbanization, and in general, growth in the number of people on this planet. So a great real world example of this is the peppered moth, uh, Boston Betularia. And peppered moths normally have this black and white peppered look to them. Just imagine sprinkling some salt and pepper on a moth. But during the Industrial Revolution, when coal was widely used as an energy source, the air pollution often blackened trees and buildings. And so as this occurred, the moths changed. They became darker in color to match the color of the trees and the buildings that they resided on to avoid predation. And so this is a, a human-caused change in an animal. But as air pollution change sources away from coal that, you know, didn't cause this um, blackening of building facades, the moths became lighter in color again. And so that's, you know, one of my favorite examples of anthropomorphic forces working on uh, organism adaptions. I guess you could, in thinking about what they refer to the, you said, quote, untouched by civilization, at least in Legends Arceus. Right. I guess... To me, that also gives signs of them getting ecology wrong about Pokemon, just because I think that's kind of this Western idea of like, there's these like untouched regions or regions that are untouched by human hands. But from yeah. my experience, that is very much not true. If we right. see humans as being part of like the ecosystem. Right. I had this conversation with an ecologist earlier this year about, you know, when did humans stop seeing themselves as part of this larger ecosystem and you know where do we see some of these shifts because like you said humans are part of the environment and so when we think like civilization i think the first thing people think is like the modern era urbanization industrialization but of course there was a time when these things didn't exist that doesn't mean we're not part of the environment now mm -hmm. but there was a different point in time when our interactions with the environment were different, you know, across all people when, you know, perhaps it was like hunter gatherer area era or, you know, as people start getting into agriculture and whatnot. And it, this, these changes over time influence the environment in different ways. You know, hunters and gatherers are going to impact the environment differently than, say, someone who drives in their car to the grocery store. Mm hmm. Yeah, thank you for addressing that. 
No, thank you for bringing it to my attention. Mm-hmm. One uh, big question I have for you that I don't think you were prepared to answer is if you could make <laughs> one ecology edition or one po- or one um, species edition to the Pokemon universe, what would it be? One species edition. Oh gosh, I am. Or very... ecology region. I'm not, I don't want to. <laughs> I want to. I want to leave region. space for you to <laughs> add an ecosystem too. You know, I am very biased towards invertebrates, and I think we do have like this healthy diversity of bug type Pokemon. I would like to see more Pokemon based on plants. Actually, there's there's a couple, you know, like Crad Lily and um, the new mushroom looking one, and there's a couple others, I believe. But I think the plant Pokemon would provide some, you know, interesting lore to the Pokemon world about how they interact with the environment. Because, I mean, we've got like plants in the Pokemon world, but we've also got like plant Pokemon. And do we want to consider those animals as like, well, do we want to consider them as basically the equivalent of an animal or maybe just a really advanced plant? I don't know. Maybe this animal is really good at mimicking plants. It's unclear. But I think that would be interesting to build upon. I don't think Cradilly is actually based on a plant. I think it's based on an echinoderm. Oh, gosh. Don't listen <laughs> yeah. to me. What do uh, I know? Sea lilies is what they're based on. So that's one less plant than for, for the Pokemon yeah. universe. Cut the cameras. There are less <laughs> plants. <laughs> very cool. Very nice. So uh, where can our listeners follow you and find out more about your work, Jillian? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky under Bugs or Bust. I post mostly about spiders and video games. And if you want to see more of the kinds of spiders I'm catching and cool pictures of them, you can also follow me on iNaturalist, also at Bugs or Bust. And then I also have a short series on YouTube with my friend Kip where we rank bug-type Pokemon and talk about their real-life counterparts and how they also fare in competitive play. And you can find that on YouTube at level one Miko. Um, that is L-V-L-1-M-I-K-O. And you can also watch the same kind of content on Twitch. So last but not least, you can also find me on the Pika Science Discord if you just want to chat. Hear that, folks? Find Jillian on the Discord. But yes, thank you, Jillian, so much for this interview and teaching me a lot about ecology and pokey ecology. Um, Hopefully, we'll be seeing more of you on Pika Science. I hope so, too. (laughs) Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Pika Science. So... Toodaloo!